Chapter 17 of The Frozen Pirate. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Aidan Maine. The Frozen Pirate by William Clark Russell. Chapter 17 The Treasure. When his pipe was out, he rose and made several strides about the cook room then took the lanthorn, and entering the cabin, stood a while surveying the place. "'So this would have been my coffin before you, Mr. Rodney,' said he. "'I was in good company, though,' pointing over his shoulder at the crucifix with his thumb. "'Lord, how the rogues prayed and cursed in this same cabin! In fine weather, and when all was well, the sharks in our wake had more religions than they.' But the instant they were in danger, down they tumbled upon their quivering knees, and if heaven was twice as big as it is, it could not have held saints enough for those valets to petition. You were nearly all Spaniards? Aye, the worst class of men a ship could enter the seas with. But for our calling, they are the fittest of all the nations in the world. Better even than the Portuguese, and with truer trade instincts than the trained mulatto. Nimbler artists in rogueries than ever one of them. I despise their superstition, but they are the better pirates for it. They carry it as a man might a feather bed. It enables them to fall soft. Do you take me? Ha! He gave one of his short, loud laughs, and said, I hope this slope won't increase. The angle's stiff enough as it is. T'will be like living on the roof of a house. I have a mind to see how she lies. What do you say, Mr. Rodney? Shall I venture into the open? Why not, said I. You can move briskly. You have as much life as ever you had. Let's go then, he exclaimed. And climbing the ladder, he pushed open the companion door and stepped on to the deck. I followed with but little solicitude, as you may suppose, as to what might attend his exposure. The blast of the gale, though it was broken into downwards eddying dartings by the rocks, made him bawl out with the sting of it, and for some moments he could think of nothing but the cold, stamping the deck and beating his hands. "'Ha!' cried he, grinning to the smart of his cheeks. "'This is not the cook-room, eh? Great thunder, you will not have it that this ice has been drifting north.' Why, man, tis icier but twenty degrees than when we first locked up. I hope not, said I, and I think not. Your blood doesn't course strong yet, and you are fresh from the furnace. Besides, it is blowing a bitter cold gale. Look at that sky and listen to the thunder of the sea. The commotion was indeed terribly uproarious. The spume, as before, was blowing in clouds of snow over the ice and fled in very startling flashes of whiteness under the livid drapery of the sky. The wind itself sounded like the prolonged echo of a discharge of monster ordnance, and it screeched and whistled hideously where it struck the peaks and edges of the cliffs and swept through the schooner's masts. The rending noises of the ice in all directions were distinct and fearful. The Frenchman looked about him with consternation, and to my surprise crossed himself. "'May the blessed Virgin preserve us!' he said. Do you say we have drifted north? If this is not the heart of the South Pole, you shall persuade me we are on the equator. 
It cannot storm too terribly for us, as you just now said, I replied. I want this island to go to pieces. As I said this, a solid pillar of ice just beyond the brow of the hill on the starboard side was dislodged or blown down. It fell with a mighty crash and filled the air with crystal splinters. Tassard started back with a faint cry of, Bon Dieu! Judge for yourself how the ship lies, said I. This is freezing work. He went aft and looked over the stern, then walked to the larboard rail and peered over the side. Is there ice beyond that opening? he asked, pointing over the taffrail. No, I answered. That goes to the sea. There is a low cliff beyond. Mark that cloud of white. It is the spray hurled athwart the mouth of this hollow. Good, he mumbled with his teeth chattering. This change is marvelous. There was ass for a quarter of a mile where that slope ends. Tis too cold to converse here. There are your companions, said I, pointing to the two bodies lying a little distance before the main mast. He marched up to them and exclaimed, Yes, this is Trentanov, and that is Barros. Both were blind, but they are blinder now. Would they thank you to arouse them out of their comfortable sleep and force them to feel as I do, this cold to which they are now as insensible as I was? By heaven, for my part, I can stand it no longer. And with that, he ran briskly to the hatch. I followed him to the cook-room, and he crept so close to the furnace that I thought he had a mind to roast himself. No doubt, newly come to life as he was, the cold hurt him more than me, and maybe the tide of those animal spirits which had in his former existence furnished him with a brute courage had not yet flowed full into his mind. Still, I questioned even in his heyday if there had ever been much more than the swashbuckler in him, which opinion, however, could only increase the anxiety his companionship was likely to cause me by obliging me to understand that I must prepare myself for treachery, and on no account whatever to suppose for a moment that he was capable of the least degree of gratitude, or was to be swerved from any design he might form by considerations of my claim upon him as his preserver. It is among the wonders of human nature that antagonisms should be found to flourish under such conditions of hopelessness, misery, and anguish as make those who languish under them the most pitiful wretches under God's eye. But so it has been, so it is, so it will ever be. Two men in an open boat at sea, their lips frothing with thirst, their eyes burning with famine, shall fall upon each other and fight to the death. Two men on an island Two miserable castaways whose dismal end can only be a matter of a week or two eye each other morosely, give each other injurious words, break away and sullenly live, each man by himself on opposite sides of their desert prison. Beasts do not act thus, nor birds, nor reptiles, only man. What was in the Frenchman Tassard's mind I do not know. In mine was fear, dislike, profound distrust a great uneasiness, albeit we were alone. We were brothers in affliction and distress, as completely sundered from the world to which we belonged as if we lay stranded in the icy moon, speaking in the same tongue and believing in the same God. The heat comforted him presently, and he put a lump of wine into the oven to melt, and this comforted him also. I can converse now, said he. Perhaps, after all, the danger lies more in the imagination than in the fact. 
but it is a hideous naked scene, and needs no such colouring as the roaring of wind, the rushing of seas, and the crashing falls of masses of ass to render it fretful. You tell me, said I, that when you fell asleep, I would sometimes express his frozen state thus, there was a quarter of a mile of ice beyond the schooner's stern. At least a quarter of a mile, he answered. Day after day, it would be built up till it came to a face of that extent. I thought to myself, if it has taken forty-eight years of the wear and tear of storm and surge to extinguish a quarter of a mile, how long a time must elapse before this island splits up? But then I reflected that during the greater part of those years, this seat of ice had been stuck very low south where the cold was so extreme as to make it defy dissolution, that since then it was come away from the main and stealing north, so that what might have taken thirty years to accomplish in seventy degrees of south latitude might be performed in a day on the parallel of sixty degrees in the summer season in these seas. Tassard continued speaking with the pannikin in his hand, and his eyes shut as if to get the picture of the schooner's position fair before his mind's vision. There was a quarter of a mile of ice beyond the ship. I have it very plain in my sight. It was a great muddle of illux, for the ice pressed thick and hard, and raised us and vomited up peaks and rocks to the squeeze. Suppose I have been asleep a week. Here he opened his eyes and gazed at me. Well, said I. I say, he continued in the tone of one easily excited into passion, a week. It will not have been more. It is impossible. Never mind about your eighteen hundred and one, showing his fangs in a sarcastic grin. A week is long enough, friend. Then this is what I mean to say, that the breaking away of a quarter of a mile of ice in a week is fine work, full of grand promise. The next wrench, which might come now as I speak, or tomorrow, or in a week, the next wrench may bring away the rock on which we are lodged. And the rest is a matter of patience, which we can afford, eh? For we are but two. There is plenty of meat and liquor, and the reward afterwards is a princely independence, Mr. Paul Rodney. I was struck with the notion of the bed of ice on which the schooner lay going afloat, and said, Are sea and wind to be helped, think you? If the block on which we lie could be detached, it might beat a bit against its parent stock, but would not unite again. The schooner's canvas might be made to help it along, though suppose it capsized. We must consider, said he. There is no need to hurry. When the wind falls, we will survey the ice. He warmed himself afresh, and after remaining silent with the air of one turning many thoughts over in his mind, he suddenly cried, Do you know, I have a mind to view the plate and money below. What say you? His little eyes seemed to sparkle with suspicion as he directed them at me. I was confident he suspected I had lied in saying I knew nothing of this treasure, and that he wanted to see if I had meddled with those chests. One of the penalties attached to a man being forced to keep the company of liars is, he himself is never believed by them. I answered instantly, Certainly. I should like to see this wonderful booty. It is right that we should find out at once if it is there, for supposing it vanished, we should be no better than madmen to sit talking here of the fine lives we shall live if ever we get home. He picked up the lanthorn and said, 
I must go to your cabin. It was the captain's. The keys of the chest should be in one of his boxes. He marched off, and was so long gone that I was almost of belief he had tumbled down in a fit. However, I had made up my mind to act a very wary part, and particularly never to let him think I distrusted him, and so I would not go to see what he was about. But what I did was this. The arms room was next door. I lighted a candle, entered it, and swiftly armed myself with a sort of dagger, a kind of boarding knife, a very murderous little two-edged sword, the blade about seven inches long, and the haft of brass. There were some fifty of these weapons, and I took the first that came to my hand and dropped it into the deep side pocket of my coat and returned to the cook-room. It was not that I was afraid of going unarmed with this man into the hold. There was no more danger to me there than here. Should he ever design to dispatch me, one place was the same as another, for the dead above could not testify. There were no witnesses in this white and desolate kingdom. What resolved me to go armed was the fear that should the treasure be missing, and who was to swear that the schooner had never been visited once in eight and forty years? The Frenchman, who was persuaded his stupor had not lasted above a week, and who was doubtless satisfied the chests were in the hold down to the period when he lost recollection, would suspect me of foul play, and in the barbarous rage of a pirate fall upon and endeavor to kill me. Thus you will see that I had no very high opinion of the morals and character of the man I had given life to, and indeed, after I had armed myself and was seated again before the furnace, I felt extremely melancholy, and underwent the severest dejection of spirits that had yet visited me, fearing that my humanity had achieved nothing more than to bring me into the society of a devil, who would prove a fixed source of anxiety and misery to me. Was it conceivable that the others should be worse than, or even as bad as, this creature? His hair showed him hoary in vice. The Italian was a handsome man, and let him have been as profligate as he would, as cruel and fierce a pirate as Tessard had painted him, he would at all events have proved a sightly companion, and harmless as being blind, though to be sure for that reason of no use to me. Yet, though his blindness would have made him a burden, I had rather have thought him into life than the Frenchman. The mere thought of feeling under an obligation to arm myself filled me with such vindictive passions that I protest as I sat alone waiting for him. I felt as if it were a duty I owed myself to return him to the condition in which I found him, which was to be easily contrived by my binding him in his sleep and dragging him to the deck and leaving him to stupefy alongside the body of the giant Joan Barros. Peace! cried I to myself with a shiver. Villain that thou art to harbor such thoughts! Thou art a hundredfold worse than the wretch against whom Satan is setting thee plotting to think thus vilely. I gulped down this bolus of conscience with the help of a draught of wine, and it did me good. Lord, how dangerous is loneliness to a man! Depend upon it, your seeker after solitude is only hunting for the road that leads to Bedlam. It might be that he was long because of having to seek for the keys, but my own conviction was that he found the keys easily, and stayed to rummage the boxes for such jewels and articles of value as he might there find. I think he was gone near half an hour. He then returned to the cookhouse, saying briefly, I have the keys, and jingling them, and after warming himself said, Let us go. I was moving towards the forecastle. Not that way for the run, cried he. Is there a hatch aft? I asked. Certainly, in the lazarette. I wish I had known that, said I. I should have been spared a stifling scramble over the casks and raffle forwards. He led the way, 
and coming to the trap hatch that conducted to the lazaret, he pulled it open, and we descended. He held the lanthorn and threw the light around him and said, "'As there are plenty of stores here. We reckoned upon provisions for twelve months, and we were seventy a crew.' A strange figure he looked, just touched by the yellow candlelight, and standing out upon the blackness like some vision of a distempered fancy, in his hair cap and flaps, and with his long nose and beard and little eyes shining as he rolled them here and there. We made our way over the casks, bales, and the like, till we were right aft, and here there was a small clear space of deck in which lay a hatch. This he lifted by its ring, and down through the aperture did he drop, I following. The lazaret deck came so low that we had to squat when still and move upon our knees. At the foremost end of this division of the ship, so far as it was possible for my eyes to pierce the darkness, for it seems that this run went clear to the forehold bulkhead, that is to say, under the powder room, to where the forehold began, were stowed the spare sails, ropes for gear, and a great variety of furniture for the equipment of a ship's yards and mast. But immediately under the hatch stood several small chests and cases, painted black, stowed side by side so that they could not shift. Dessard ran his eye over them, counting. Right, cried he. Hold the lanthorn, Mr. Rodney. I took the light from him, and, pulling the keys from his pocket, he fell to trying them at the lock of the first chest. One fitted. The bolt shot with a hard click, like cocking a trigger, and he raised the lid. The chest was full of silver money. I picked up a couple of the coins, and, bringing them to the candle, perceived them to be Spanish pieces of eight. The money was tarnished, yet it reflected a sort of dull metallic light. The Frenchman grasped a handful and dropped them, as though, like a child, he loved to hear the chink the pieces made as they fell. "'There's a brave pocketful there,' said I. "'Tut!' cried he scornfully. "'Tis a mere show of money. Resolve it into gold, and it becomes a lean bit of plunder. This we got from the conquistador. It was all she had in this way. Destined for some monastery, I recollect. But disappointment is good for holy fathers.' It makes them more earnest in their devotions, and keeps their paunches from swelling. He let fall the lid of the chest, which locked itself, and then, after a short trial of the keys, opened the one beside it. This was stored to the top with what I took to be pigs of lead, and when he pulled out one and bade me feel the weight of it, I still thought it was lead, until he told me it was virgin silver. This was good booty, cried he taking the lanthorn and swinging it over the blocks of metal. It would have been missed but for me. Our men found it in the hold of the buccaneer in a chest half again as deep as this, and sought it to be a case of marmalade, for there were two layers of boxes of marmalade stood on top. I routed them out and found those pretty bricks of ore snug beneath. I believe Mendoza made the value of the two chests, silver though it may be to be equal to six thousand pounds of your money. The next chest he opened was filled with jewelry of various kinds, the fruits, I dare say, of a dozen pillages, for not only had this pirate robbed honest traders, but a picaroon as well that had also plundered in her turn another of her own kidney, so that, as I say, this chest of jewelry might represent the property of the passengers of as many as a dozen vessels. It was as if the contents of the shop of a jeweler who was at once a goldsmith and a silversmith, had been emptied into this chest. 
You could scarce name an ornament that was not here. Watches, snuff boxes, buckles, bracelets, pounce boxes, vinaigrettes, earrings, crucifixes, stars for the hair, necklaces, but the list grows tiresome. In silver and gold, but chiefly in gold, all shot together and lying scramble fashion as if they had been potatoes. This is a fine sight, said Tassard, pouring upon the sparkling mass with falcon nose and ravenous eyes. Here is a dainty little watch. Fifty guineas would not purchase it in London or Paris. Where is the white breast upon which that cross there once glittered? Ah, the perfume has faded, bringing a vinaigrette to his hawk's bill. The soul is gone. The body is the immortal part in this case. Now, my friend, talk to me of the patient drudgery of honorable life after this. Collecting the chests, so to say, to my view with a sweep of the hand. Men will break their hearts for a hundred livres ashore and be hanged for the price of a pinchbeck dial. When I was in London, I saw five men carted to the gallows. One had forged. One was a highwayman. I forget the other's businesses. But I recollect on inquiring the value of their baggings, that for which they were hanged, it did not amount to four guineas a man. Look at this. He swept his great hand again over the chests. Is not here something worth going to the scaffold for? His bosom swelled, his eyes sparkled, and he made as if to strike a heroic posture, but this he could not contrive on his hands. I was thunderstruck, as you will suppose, by the sight of all this treasure, and looked and stared like a fool, as if I was in a dream. I had never seen so many fine things before, and indulged in the most extravagant fancies of their worth. Here and there in the glittering huddle my eye lighted on an object that was a hundred, perhaps two hundred years old, a cup very choicely wrought that may have been in a family for several generations, a watch of a curious figure, and the like. There might have been the pickings of the cabins, trunks, and portmanteau of a hundred opulent men and women in this chest, and so far as I could judge from what lay atop, the people plundered represented several nationalities. But there were other chests and cases to explore, ten in all. Two of these were filled with silver money, a third with plate, a fourth with English, French, Spanish, and Portugal coins and gold. But the one over which Tassard hung longest in a transport that held him dumb was the smallest of all, and this was packed with gold in bars. The stuff had the appearance of moldy yellow soap, and having no sparkle nor variety did not affect me as the jewelry had, though in value this chest came near to being worth as much as all the others put together. The fixed transported posture of the pirate, his little shining eyes intent upon the bars, his form in the candlelight looking like a sketch of a strange, wildly appareled man done in phosphorus, coupled with the loom of the black chests, the sense of our desolation, the folly of our enjoyment of the sight of the treasure in the face of our pitiable and dismal plight, the melancholy storming of the wind, moaning like the rumble of thunder heard in a vault, and above all the feeling of unreality inspired by the thought of my companion having lain for eight and forty years as good as dead, combined to render the scene so startlingly impressive that it remains at this hour painted as vividly upon the eye of memory as if I had come from it five minutes ago. So cried the Frenchman suddenly, slamming the lid of the chest. "'Tis all here. 
Now then, to the business of considering how to come off with it. He thrust the keys in his pocket, and we returned to the cookroom. End of chapter 17